Hey everyone, this is Paul, and before jumping into this conversation between our very own Miley and Adam Krapser, who some of you who are into film or adoptee issues or Korean-American community may have heard his name through the recent controversy over Blue Bayou, I just wanted to briefly reflect on what I felt after more than 40 episodes of working on the Divided Families podcast. I wanted to share two reflections that I had after listening to this conversation. And the first is actually what our last guest, Braden Sonny White, said about indigenous stories. You know, he said, if you want to be an ally, uh, you should amplify others' voices, but don't take the mic. And that resonated with me while listening to this conversation because so many times we have seen people try to tell stories, sometimes very compelling stories, but not let the actual subjects share their own stories themselves, instead assuming uh, what their needs are and what their interests are. And it was a reminder for me that with our project, we want to be true to that principle of amplifying others' stories. The other point that I wanted to share from this conversation was uh, what Adam shares about you know, his, his big gripe with Blue Bayou being that one of the big gripes being that they left out uh, a call to action. And this is something that I grappled with a lot uh, at the beginning of this project of uh, working on the podcast is that, you know, just separating the stories, isolating uh, the stories and worrying about the action later. Um, and I'm gradually starting to realize myself that sometimes uh, those two are so closely intertwined that uh, you need the call to action as we've been trying to do more and more in our episodes as well. Without that, the, the story loses its, its footing and its foundation in uh, what its impact can be. Um, so just wanted to share my two cents and without further ado, here's Miley and Adam. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Divided Families podcast. Uh, my name is Miley, and I'm one of the behind-the-scenes members of the Divided Families podcast team. So this is actually my first interview on the podcast, and I'm super honored to say that today I will be speaking with Adam Krapser. And Adam's story and personal experience with family separation is familiar to many of us in the Asian-American adoptee community. And really like the injustice of it all, like struck a chord with a lot of people and me included. I will let him tell you more about himself. So hi, Adam. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hello. And yeah, thank you for having me on the show. My name is Adam Krapser and I'm 46 years old this year. I've been deported for uh, almost five years. I have a 10-year ban from the United States before I can reapply to enter under my Korean name as a Korean national in the in the attempts to recover or reclaim you know residency and then uh, ultimately citizenship again or not again but hopefully that's the, the end goal is to try and recover that yeah so if you don't mind me asking can you give us sort of a brief overview of your story and your history being deported back to korea for anyone who isn't familiar 
Well, uh, it's a, yeah, it's a long story, but I guess the high points are that, you know, I had a pretty crazy upbringing and was on my own uh, as a teenager at almost 17 years old. And then because of some bad choices and because of some choices on the, you know, on the part of my adoptive parents, you know, things didn't, things didn't go well for a number of different years for them and for, and for myself. But needless to say, you know, they ended up in trouble with the law. And later on, I would end up in trouble with the law. And, you know, I would hit a, hit a, a prison yard at 19 years old. And uh, ironically, that would be my first kind of introduction to Asian Americans. Um, I hadn't, I didn't grow up with Asian Americans, uh, let alone any Korean people. And in the criminal justice system in the United States, there's not a huge presence of Koreans, let alone in the area where I was. And so my first introduction to Asian or a you know, the AAPI community was, you know, mostly with Southeast Asians and, and some Pacific Islanders throughout the, uh, as I, you know, navigated the, the criminal justice system in Oregon and, and Washington, uh, you know, that's how I, I would become, I would come to know about a lot of things. Uh, I've been, re- I wanted to ask, like, why are you in Mexico City? Uh, a lot of different reasons, but <clears throat> one to be in a similar time zone to the North, you know, a North American time zone, uh, which is where, you know, my children reside, as well as a lot of, uh, you know, people that I'm close to. And Korea, you know, all I can say is that the last like about four and a half years in Korea were, were pretty challenging. So trying to get, you know, closer to the States as I near the halfway mark of my 10-year bar uh, for my deportation. Um, you know, it's been in the works for a while to, to try and get closer, you know, to the United States or to, uh, you know, an English-speaking or Western country. That yeah. was, uh, yeah, that was, that was the main purpose uh, was to get closer to, uh, to my children uh, logistically, but also, you know, time zones and stuff it's hard to talk to them uh sometimes when it's uh i would be almost a day ahead of them you know so it was it was hard to to try to keep up on some stuff yeah i was just personally curious because i was like emailing you thinking that you were in korea and you're like oh i'm in mexico city i was like oh my goodness it makes my life a lot easier well that's it's yeah that's in february of this year we moved to out to Baja, California, to the uh, Cabo San Lucas uh, kind of peninsula down there. And we're just down there up until about uh, three weeks, almost a month ago. We actually had a really bad hurricane. And then right after that is when we, we made it over here. And then I actually just got back yesterday from going back over there to finish up at our old place and, and tie up some stuff over there. And then it's like only like two hour flight. So wasn't wasn't too bad um and then get the rest of our belongings and bring them back over here to uh to mexico city where where we're at is um i'm not sure yet where are you uh based out of i actually was living in south korea for about three years and i just moved back to ohio in may i think oh so you probably could relate to some of the challenges living in south korea to an extent especially as you know, me, I'm not a native speaker. I'm not, you know, I didn't grow up in Korea. And so same, same for you, obviously. So you probably could, you know, probably could, could relate to some of the cultural barriers and challenges that exist there really for everybody. But I don't know, being like minority within a minority, you know, or a marginalized community within another 
you know, marginalized community and, and, you know, it, it having kind of played out where it's like, wow, in the weirdest way, I would go and become this, this cultural, uh, culturalized American, but then I would have my ethnicity ultimately used against me, which would be ironic because, you know, that's really the only thing that is Korean about me, uh, you know, or has been for most of my life uh, was, was just my ethnicity. It's uh, it's a weird, you know, intersection of a lot of of a lot of things that have taken place over you know many years, and um, you know, a lot of that has to do with me and choices that I've that I've made or that I you know thought that I had to make, and I, I didn't really, you know, I, immigration issues were never really on my radar as far as like being life altering or or you know pertinent to to me or my particular way that I was situated in the, in the States, I, I felt like there was some insulation there. Uh, at some point, even, to, even towards the end, I thought that ultimately, you know, that, you know, pragmatism or, or, or just the fact that I had been in the United States so long, you know, and went there as a, as a child, as a young child, that those things would, would really play into or take, be taken into account. And I don't think that that's really what the agenda was. So, you know, here we are. So, something that I also want to ask is like, how, how do you feel about your personal adoption story blowing up as much as it did? Because for a lot of us, adoption can be kind of a traumatic experience and like to be scrutinized by the public eye. How did you feel about that? Well, it was, uh, I mean, it was kind of a two-edged sword, but I can say now that, I mean, I don't, I, I didn't, I didn't have any idea that my story or my situation would become so well-known. And it's really ironic because there's, there's a lot of good things as well as you know continual bad things that that are attached to that and it's really it's hard to break it all down there's a ton of nuance but suffice to say it's, it's taken its toll on me uh in a lot of ways so i've had to really take care of uh of, of myself better than than i was at one point and part of that involved reaching out and, and getting some professional mental health you know over the last couple of years in order to kind of help compartmentalize the different things that were going on within my own life. And then, and then also, you know, there's a lot of the feelings and, and things that were attached to the powerlessness or the hopelessness, a lot of the you know, guilt and accountability that, that comes from inadvertently or <laughs> being a part of the, the ongoing, you know, victimization of my, my own children. And that's hard for me to talk about, but it doesn't escape me that like, generationally for me and within my family line, I guess I come to find out that you know, there's a lot of similarities within my, you know, my, my parents' lives and then my own life and stuff and having to try to reconcile that in a, in a realistic way and not in this fantastical kind of movie parameters, you know, people sometimes try to put on stuff and it's, it's, I don't really know what I'm doing except for just surviving and getting, you know, getting through the time. Everything else that's come along the way has been, big learning experience for me. I've met a lot of really great people and I've met a lot of not great people. So, I mean, you know, dealing with, uh, with the Korean government was extremely frustrating, you know, advocating and, and creating social justice group in, in Korea to try and help advocate not only for post-adoption services, you know, for a lot of other adoptees, but also especially for other deported adoptees that had been there for a long time before I came along. So, trying to believe in what's right and speak up for that and comes with so many different things that you could never predict going into it. 
I just hope that, you know, historically, I hope that everything's documented correctly and that the truth is, is out there. And that as history goes on and the years go on, some of the facts tend to get diluted, a little bit watered down, some of the time frames, some of the specifics and some of the things that are kind of important. And when it comes to Korean adoption, you cannot really predict, I guess, you know, how, how that's going to be. Like I've met adoptees who've told me they've never experienced racism their whole life. They're, they're, they're around my age. They grew up uh, in upstate New York never experienced racism. And I was like, that would be the hope for everybody, you know, that are people of color that have, you know, but then I've also met people who have experienced the worst kind of brutality because of, because of racism. I don't know. I, all I can really say is that this, this whole experience is, has, uh, I, I want to believe has wisened me up in some ways. And it, it's made me sit up and pay attention. It's made me take notes. It made, it's made me work hard. It's made me um, dig deep. And, and really uh, reach down and yank those proverbial American bootstraps. Not make excuses, you know, but make, uh, make changes and make preparations. And get on with life. That's all anybody can do. And I, I think that I know so many people who are impacted by deportation. Like I've, I've, I've made friends and have connections with really good people along the way. I've heard a lot of people's stories. I've found similarities with people who I never in my life would have ever thought, you know, that we would be sharing these uh, these common threads within our lives, you know, let alone that we keep in touch with each other, you know, five years after being in a, in a detention center. And for me, I'm really fortunate. I'm very grateful. You know, I've had help in comparison to all the other times in my life that I'd been in institutions where I didn't have any family or, or any support. I'm, I'm, I'm proud to say, you know, I had a lot of help and support because it's how I kind of how I found my community or how I found a community ironically was because of all this. So yeah, there's a lot of twists and turns and these different things that intersect and cross over and stuff that sometimes even me, it, it still doesn't really seem like real to me, but it is. And, and I have to keep, uh, I have to keep, you know, going on and, and getting through this. Um, you know, I've had to go to funerals where other deported people have taken their lives. Other adoptees have taken like a lot of bad stuff, man. And being being so close to it in proximity is tough. Yeah, it's tough for anybody. But when you're when you're first just becoming kind of aware of of all the different layers and it's mind blowing. It really is. A lot of my own ethnic history, just from researching and stuff. I'm also aware of a lot of Vietnamese history. You know, my my daughter and her sisters are are uh, are Vietnamese and. Vietnamese people were the first Southeast Asian people to accept me kind of into the fold or into the car in, in prison. And so my exposure to Southeast Asian culture came through, through Vietnamese and Laotian and Cambodian people. That being kind of my center of focus while I was trying to develop into this Asian American that I could be okay with, you know, or that other people would be okay with was a lifelong challenge, but then being introduced to the whole Korean part of, the, of Asian culture and stuff and how different that was from other, other Southeast Asian cultures or other, just other cultures that I've been around. And a lot of that is not great. And there's a lot of intergenerational trauma that just has no choice, I guess, but to trickle down. And uh, it's tough to see how elderly people are treated in South Korea. It's tough to see how women are treated. It's tough to see how single mothers are treated. It's tough to see how adoptees are treated. It's tough to, when you even mention that you're adopted, like Korean people's first reaction is to look down. Like they won't hold your gaze. They won't look you in the eye because it's like in this immediate shame thing. 
I guess I understand more why a lot of Korean people would feel that way, being such a developed country that it is, and all of these other things that Korea prides itself on. But, you know, this focus on you know, materialism and capitalism, competing with each other, and, you know, actually competing with, with white America is really what who they're really competing with. But all of those things and understanding it and then trying to understand and realize my, my place and all that kind of sucks sometimes. <laughs> But we all don't get a Disney story, you know, and we all got to live our lives and we got to all try to be the hero in our own stories and do the best we can. And for history, try and change uh, some of those things. You know, a lot of these things don't have to be uh, complete tragedies, I guess. Meaning that, like, for me, I'm really lucky because I would have a lifetime ban if it wasn't for another person who fought their case so hard, you know, that it, and, and appealed it all the way to the, to the highest court in order for there to be a ruling, you know, a judgment uh, so that, you know, my original charge was not a removable offense, uh, let alone an aggravated felony. So like I sometimes I think about how very lucky I am to not have had that sentence kind of thrown at me, you know, that sense of permanence with that, that I know is part of a lot of people's, you know, sentences. And so for me, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. And I guess that comes with a certain sense of responsibility for me that because I have kind of been given that opportunity as well as the little soapbox that I have to be able to talk about my experiences and, and how this has affected myself, but also the adopted communities and the, the communities of color and all the intersections. I kind of felt like, hey, if, if a person, you know, if so many people come out and support you and, and have helped you, like you're kind of, you're, you're a dirtbag if you don't, if you don't try and speak up for others and try to help other people, you know? And so there's so many people who were sent before me and they didn't get a chance. There wasn't a reporter who wanted to come talk to them about their life experiences. So I guess, I mean, I was just trying to stay in the, in the States with my family. You know, I was just trying to stay in the country that I knew. I didn't know it would come with everything that it has. And now, now I got it. Now I'm dealing with, with a lot of those things. So it is what it is, you know, and, and I know tons of people who, who are living deportation every day and they have so many more challenges than I do, you know, and I feel for them and their families because I know it, you know, and I've seen it up close and personal, how, how hard it can be to live in some places where you don't have access to so many things that we take for granted in the, in the United States. You know, I still have privilege and that's because of a lot of my relationships with Americans and my proximity to Americans. So I just know this is a tough, this is a tough thing for, for a lot of people. I have other close friends who are living um, through family separation every single day, you know, where they half the year, they have to go back to the United States to work you know, and be away from their, their family for half of the year so that they can survive. There's so much, many things, you know, behind the scenes that so many people probably can't really uh, wrap their head around that is a part of daily, you know, day-to-day -day life and survival for people uh, when you're separated or when there's, you know, these, these real life things in place that make it hard to uh, take care of your family and to be, you know, keep each other safe. And especially during all this coronavirus stuff it's just been like extra for everybody it's been extra but it's just like when you're separated and you can't you can't contribute to making sure that, that you know you're doing your part to help you know with your kids you know to, to make sure that they're safe and that if something does happen like what can you do you know and I mean I'm, I'm fortunate and lucky like they're not they're, they're they're healthy and they're good and they're like they're safe and they're well taken care of but 
I know other people who they haven't been as fortunate. So, I mean, I think these are realities that are, are good to keep in mind, you know, for us, uh, I think about so many people, you know, who, you know, whose, whose lives are super, super impacted by some of these really just archaic laws and, and something that I don't know. I don't know. I mean, people want to talk about it all the time, but the political scope of immigration is just so crazy that it's hard to get excited about like change. It's hard to like make your brain feel good trying to figure a way out how this is going to work, how to make it work for so many people. Yeah. It's, it's monumental. And so you, for me, my brain can only handle like a small amount and then it has to like turn it off because what can we do? You know, what can, what can you do? And then there's so many in-groups and so many uh, like almost factions, if you will, of people fighting and arguing amongst themselves. And so it's hard to just really, you know, arbitrarily put your trust out there, you know, put your, put your best foot forward out there with everybody and hope that everybody's going to like feel the same way, you know, or that they're all going to agree about things that at least to a lot of people are kind of fundamental human rights stuff that other people want to politicize. And it's, you know, it's hard to have those conversations with people because it's not like the information isn't out there. It's, it's, it's what kind of information people want to really consume, you know, and unfortunately at times people want to consume the, the bad stories and the sensational and the dramatic and the ones that make the ears perk up, you know, and it's a lot different living that story than it is hearing about them and, and getting through it, you know, living, living it and getting through it. Um, trying to come out cool on the other side. Yeah, that's actually um, a really good segue into my next question, because I really wanted to talk to you about Blue Bayou. So for those of you that don't know, um, Blue Bayou is a movie that was released recently that was written, directed and features Justin Chan, who is basically the movie tells this story that is suspiciously close to Adam's story. And it follows a father named Antonio. And Antonio is a Korean adoptee facing deportation um, because of past decisions. So I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on like the the controversy surrounding the film. And I understand that you were contacted by Justin in maybe 2017 or some a few years ago. And so like, what did that conversation look like? And like, how do you feel about that movie? Well, we're like, we're a little, we're about six weeks from the initial kind of drama that, that kicked off about it. Um, back when I first became aware of the movie, um, actually being, you know, going to production or, or being screened. And, and it caught me off guard because my last uh, kind of take on it or my last conversation with the producer, uh, Spring McCoy, was that there was an understanding that there would be a written agreement with the organization that I was affiliated with, uh, Adoptees for Justice, that there would be written agreement that there would be no movement forward in the film uh, unless the entire script was rewritten, meaning that they removed any of my likeness out of the film, as well as that there would be a call to action that was required as a requirement at the at the end of the film to the legislation for the Adoptee Citizenship Act. So these were huge welches, you know what I mean? These were huge things that he, he did not honor uh, or Focus Films didn't offer, you know, the, the producer uh, from Stalker didn't um, honor. And so, yeah, it, it, it didn't sit right with me. And Justin knows what he, what he was doing. You know, I, you know, and I don't want to speak out of turn too much, but it's like, this isn't the first time it's happened with him. People who know him, people who are in the whatever with him, they know this. It's not real public knowledge yet, probably, because 
people really weren't scrutinizing him, but there's other people in the Asian American film industry right now, you know, that are scrutinizing Justin, that there's other people who are, who are reading interviews with him from NBC, where he is calling out other Asian filmmakers and the authenticity behind how they make their movies and whether they're born out of opportunity or not. I mean, these are, these are his own words, right? And then yet he goes and perpetrates the exact thing that he's calling, you know what I mean? So it's kind of stupid. Like, and I understand what's going on. Justin, Justin epitomizes kind of like, I call it like this little Prince syndrome uh, problem that comes out of South Korea, especially that I've seen up close with little young, uh, especially male Korean boys who are baby, who are spoon fed literally into their forties, whose laundry is done and folded for them, who, whose moms are going in the bathroom and bathing them. You know what I mean? As grown up stuff, weird stuff, weird stuff that that isn't culturally appropriate for me as an American and as a parent is inappropriate for me. So I take issue with a number of those things, but suffice to say that there's a lot of these really weird intersections of culture there. And Justin kind of epitomizes some of those weird intersections, if you will. I don't know him personally. I didn't really know anything about him until he had contacted me. And, you know, he, it was really, I had had a lot of people contacted me. So I didn't know really who he was. So I thought, okay, this is just another person wishing me well and being supportive or whatever, but he leads off with, he's a producer, director, writer, actor, all this stuff, like telling me his resume and stuff. And I was like, okay. And then then I assumed, okay, he's asking to, to make a movie or documentary or be involved in something. So then he goes into, into talking about how he's a father to be and he can't imagine, you know, being separated from, from his family because he's about to be a father. And then that he can't imagine uh, being deported for things that he did so long ago because he had spent time in and out of juvenile detention as a, as a, as a youth. What that looked like for him, I don't, I don't know. I know more about Justin now than I did then. And, and I know where he grew up, what schools he went to and, and all this kind of stuff. And I've met other guys like him. So I know that Justin's and my upbringings were very different and it's, it's not a competition, not for me. What Justin chooses to do ethically, morally, you know, uh, historically, you know, in terms of like accuracy or correct is whatever. But I think he has his aspirations or his ambitions kind of ex exceed his abilities and his 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 awareness especially anyway so those those, those excuses are they're, they're ridiculous the other stuff that he you know that he's gone on to do now to try to clean it, everything up is even more ridiculous you know into his excuses for not including the call to action being that all the way to now it's it's propaganda before it was it wouldn't be uh, received well by viewers due to some polling they did or something all these different excuses he's come up with and then we consulted with first it was six then it was seven then it was 10 then it was 13 all these supposed adoptees from all these other countries that other than a couple of them have ever even been verified to ever have actually been adopted and one thing that i know and which is why I've been very careful with this is that anytime that there's like organizations that do things like raise money and fundraising and different things, it, it attracts different types of people. Sometimes it attracts people who genuinely need help. And sometimes it attracts dirtbags who want to take advantage of people and try to use people. And especially if they don't have to be vetted, especially if they don't have to provide documentation like I've had to provide especially if they don't have to be scrutinized or have FOIAs pulled or any of those kinds of things and they can use pseudonyms and stuff like this and then 
be a part of something okay i understand you know you want to have some kind of acknowledgement or a part in something these different things but when Justin uses that as escape, as kind of a scapegoat, you know, as kind of a way out to say, why well, advise it with all these people? Well, that's like saying you advise with somebody who worked at McDonald's because you don't know, you don't know anything about them personally. You're just using their name, their so-called, their assumed name and a country like some of these places that people say, and I know who a lot of these people are because I, I have helped uh, to raise money for these people, right? seriously to raise thousands of dollars and send to these people in other countries because they needed surgeries or they needed help with a number of different things but it's again it's kind of a slap in the face and kind of like real real weird that the way that all this has came out about a movie about an indie movie right about that that isn't doing well but about this movie that there's been so much drama and so much infighting and so much you know that's come from it as well as us as a community of uh, you know, Asian American Pacific Islanders, it makes us look stupid. It makes us look weak. In prison, it was the same way. If we fought amongst ourselves, that's a huge no-no because that makes us, as which, which we're already a very small population in there, if we fight amongst ourselves, it makes us look stupid. It makes us look weak. You know, like we have no organization within our, our own, you know, community or car. And that's what's going on on a little bit different level. But for Justin, in the future, and I and I already put offers out there to take, you know, fly him down here and meet me somewhere and have a conversation about this whole issue so that he can become better informed about everything. I haven't heard anything back from anybody, uh, but I meant it. Uh, and that's so that I believe that Justin had an opportunity to really raise awareness around this issue, right? And that could have been a segue into people in general in the United States learning more about what family separation looks like. When, when Justin talks about these things in circles about he's not he's not a political person, but he makes these very politically charged movie, you know what I mean? With all these overtones, with ice buddies and cop friends and this weirdo stuff that isn't cool for one. It's not a it's not correct you know, portrayal of how it actually happens. And because I don't think anybody he consulted with is going to say, yeah, man, uh, my buddy was an ICE agent, you know, and he's the one that, you know, walked me to the plane to wish me well, or he's one of the ones that flew over with me as a U.S. Marshal to drop me off in, in my home in my home country. Uh, no, Justin, I think his thing is when you can't come up with any good ideas of your own, right, you look for inspiration, creative inspiration, and then depending on your moral compass, you go and you make liberty, you take liberties, certain liberties, creative liberties about certain things. And as a Korean person himself, I think that he heard about something that he had never heard about before. He realized, oh my gosh, this actually did happen. And wow, me and this guy have some similarities. You know, I think a lot of people that I've interacted with came to these same conclusions, men and women, right? Because I, I, I could sit and talk to you for hours about the different crazy experiences I've had with people let alone adoptees and other Asians. But for Justin, I think that he was a bit short-sighted and didn't think that, hey, because deporta deportation sounds kind of like final, like there's some kind of terminal finality to, without really having done his research in the beginning about the 10-year ban and what that looks like. He tried to throw that in at the end later in an interview or something. But anyways, I think that most people can understand like in Hollywood, this isn't a new concept, you know, to, to, to go and appropriate people's live stories 
that are sensational have had sensational aspects that people in the news have talked about. Or, you know, when he tells me that it's only because of three like news or, or articles and, and Vice TV thing that he said that he, uh, and it brought him to tears while he was at a burger place on the side of the road. Like, dude, you're telling me the intro to like a movie. What is, what's going on? You know, and I wasn't ready for all that. But and so anyways, at the time uh, I was talking to another, I guess, famous Korean who wanted to talk to me about making a movie, uh, Daniel Day Kim. And I learned about this guy and I, I didn't really know that that was he was the guy from uh, Hawaii Five-0 or something. Anyway, he comes over. He's a nice guy. Uh, two of his Korean buddies that are finance guys and money fundraiser guys uh, meet with me. Anyways, when Justin contacted me, this is around the same time. And so I had had sent him a message back saying, hey, maybe I could put you guys in touch. And so in my mind, because Daniel Day Kim's already told me that like he was going to play me. Uh, I'm flattered, you know, <laughs> and all this stuff. And so I'm thinking, OK, well, I didn't know that Justin wanted to play me, too. You know what I mean? So I didn't know that Justin was going to be like, oh, no. I know that Daniel Day Kim has his own production company, so I'm going to go try to make this movie first. I didn't. I, I think that that's what happened, right? Because I think that there's some kind of weird whatever, and 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 I've seen it with a whole bunch of these privileged Korean guys. You know, that are all they do is name drop. All they do is talk about who they knew, know, and all they do is talk about who eats at Michelin star restaurants that are Korean owned or blah 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 blah. All this kind of stuff. Uh, for me, I'm not about that kind of life. Justin and his buddies, all that kind of stuff, uh, none of that stuff. So when people think, oh, it's about money or this and that, I promise Justin, like, I know people who have as much money as him or, or a lot more. So it's not about money. It's not about positionality with money. It's about any of that. That's why I've never begged anybody for anything. I've never had a GoFundMe. I don't do that stuff. You know what I mean? I, I, I take care of myself. And so when people say it's about money or it's about me trying to get some kind of, no, it's not. It's about the truth. My life, that's not my life. Uh, Justin knows what he was doing and he could have did better and he could have kept his word. To me, that's worth something. I've been places where your word is all you got. And, you know, that's a currency. And for Justin to welch on, on the most important thing, I mean, forget about me out of the equation. He burnt a lot of my friends, a lot of people by omitting the call to action. That's the biggest part of it. That's the biggest issue here. That's what angers me the most because he did this through, he had a fuselage. He had somebody kind of on the inside who is no longer a part of that organization who has went and really done some insidious, just crazy stuff to just confuse and mix all this stuff up and also represent himself as a part of Adoptees for Justice way back when the movie was being you know, made. And so there's a lot of not hard to connect dots, but there's a lot of dots to connect. And that it's it's tough for people who don't know all of the details or facts going in. But it's it's unfortunate because it does. As a as a as an Asian community, it's not a good look for us. You know, I'm sure that people have sat around, we've sat around and we've talked about like if if somebody comes in and does yellow face and just starts trying to play some Charlie Chan stuff, like we're not cool with that. If somebody wants to go and talk about the experiences of, of Asians, but they're not Asian, we're not okay with that. You know what I mean? Just like it's not okay to go appropriate other people's cultures and stuff. And so in a way, that's what Justin has done. He's went and, and he's got this weird fascination with adoptee stuff because he dated an adoptee gal in high in a college that he wanted to drop that in like Teen Vogue or 
some magazine or something where that was his first introduction to adoptees. And it's like, okay, not only does that sound weird on a couple different levels, but beings as we don't get to hear her version of what so-called relationship was like, I don't think that that's really a good excuse or, or a good history lesson in all things adoption, let alone deportation and adoptions. So again, we go back to like the people he consulted that were the experts. Look at there are so many incredibly intelligent human beings out there who's dedicated who have dedicated their life's work to the research of adoption. There's so many professional uh, researchers, anthropologists, you know, doctors, all kinds of people that he could have consulted to get information about adoption and about how deportation even is a part of that, right? There's so many other people, you know, so many human rights professors or so many, you know, so many people. He has no idea the depth of which he waded into, you know, when it, when it comes to these, these very, very nuanced positions of immigration and intersectionality of adoption and you know for instance like i try to tell people i was like when they talk about the legislation most people don't even understand they think that's a one size fits all band-aid for everybody it's not true it doesn't matter if that law went into effect tomorrow nobody's just getting on a plane and going back to the united states it's not what's going to happen it's going to require immigration laws it's going to require money it's going to require people showing up to appointments it's going to require consulates it's going to require so much you know cooperation from multiple different people and agencies and organizations for that to even get started and, and people don't know what that kind of effort actually look is gonna is gonna look like but I hate to be a pessimist about it, but I'm not holding my breath this year, just like I didn't last year. You know what I mean? There's so many other things that, that are going on and there's so much kind of like division, you know, within groups that it's really hard to, to feel positive and, and have my hats off to all the organizations that continue to beat that drum, to continue to fight, you know, for all, all these different uh, marginalized groups of people, whether it's, you know, marching and demonstrating for DACA recipients for to continue to put the pressure on uh, Homeland Security and, and the administration to continue to like do the right thing, you know, but in the big scope of things like those issues to me take precedence, right? We're a small group of people. We're, we're a small, you know, not very visible group of people. And I know that it sounds kind of crappy, but the truth is, is there's, there's so, when we're talking about millions of people who are affected by these other immigration laws and stuff. And so I don't think that like, I don't think we're just going to get bumped up to the front of the row. You know what I mean? And I don't think that it, that it, it should be an issue that we should have had to have talked about, but it's there. But I also don't feel like all the time that it's even our place to be like, Hey, you know what I mean? I feel there's privilege attached to adoption. You know what I mean? Even in these conversations, it's hard to not understand and know that and feel that going into the conversations, knowing that even just by the terminology, Korean adoptee, there's so much privilege there. There's so much privilege there, even though there's been so much bad, you know, so much bad stuff, but there was privilege. There was legislation that was passed in order for our Koreans to even be adopted to the United States in the first place. So yeah, how you balance, how, how do we balance that privilege? How do we, uh, you know, and this is for like Justin too, like how do we as, as people who have been fighting hard to be recognized as good people and, and be this model minority and to try to be these people who, who can fit into these, these uh, communities and be heard and respected and, and you know, and, and allowed to live amongst, coexist with 
other people indiscriminately you know what i mean and like to be treated with some dignity and to be able to to thrive as communities and have representation across the board i don't know that we're there yet I, and i i sometimes feel that some sometimes there's always going to be the people who are who will settle for the crumbs or settle for the the proximity instead of you know trying to actually go and and do the heavy lifting that it takes to get to those places but i don't think cheating has ever worked out well for anybody in the history of life long term so as far as the justin thing really not an issue i don't think anybody be really going to be talking about blue bayou in the next uh after a couple months you know i think it just got released in korea korea media is about to uh, release a bunch of stuff that the korean people over there love to talk about this kind of uh scandal stuff that they call it so hey it's justin justin's made his bed man i oh i what do i got to lose but to tell the truth you know what i mean I, my name is not attached to this like i didn't go and make a movie about him you know i didn't i didn't go and and i'm not trying to i'm not trying to do those things you know but my life was was not easy and and i don't need uh people like justin like making light of that you know if he if he really cared about all of it the, the way that he says he does he would acknowledge even one of the issues that we've raised that i believe carry carry validity you know and the legislation it was a huge part of this so that's i think at some point that's how his film will be remembered you know is that it was kind of a fail in a way uh, as to what it was the point that should have been made uh and instead it was just kind of a glossed over version of his interpretation while he got to play or portray a lifestyle that he's never had to live those things are weird and in the AAPI AAPI community you know again like i said there's there's intersections with a lot of southeast asian communities that uh people like justin don't have a place to be representing his jdh days he could go and make a movie about him going to jdh when he was a kid and what that was like for him maybe that's interesting to people you know but at least it'd be truthful it'd be authentic but that's not what he did I've, it's become more of an annoyance to just even think about it um it's not a big deal you know in the in the long run it's not a big deal it didn't help empower anybody's voices it didn't really bring attention or awareness to a, a really important issue i mean it, it did do a handful you know there's some people but a lot of people just couldn't separate the cinematography probably from the sensationalism of it and just seeing an asian represented you know what i mean or on the on on the screen was a big deal for a lot of people i think just like when i was young like i saw a teenage mutant ninja turtle and we were getting close we were getting closer you know what i mean and that made that that made me happy so maybe that's where other people are in their development you know maybe they're still okay with with the way that some of us are represented as long as we're represented i'm not really about that i want to think that like my life's been too real to be being fake about anything there's 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 no future in front for me so anyways that's that's, uh, that's about it so i guess to sort of wrap up can you tell us a little bit about like the work you're doing now or like if you have anything you'd like to plug for our audience to get involved and learn more about adoptee activism uh yeah i mean there's a uh, a great organization out there called nakasec it's a uh, acronym really long acronym but you can look it up it's n a k a s e c and then you can also look up adoptiesforjustice.org uh, which is a pilot project under nakasec uh so that's where you're going to get the most reliable 
correct information about how to get involved or just to learn more about current legislation and the activism that's being done around the bill, uh, as well as around a lot of other immigrant rights projects, including DACA and um, uh, TPS and stuff. So there's there's been a bunch of great work done, especially by tons of great leaders in, in, in the young AAPI community, and I'm super proud of them, super admire the work, you know, and, and the dedication that a lot of these people have committed to to these causes. You know, these are people I don't know personally, but I mean, they, they live and breathe it. And so my hat off, much respect to them and, and to keep carrying the torch for, for us, you know. But yeah, those are the people I would get in touch with. People want to know more about my life, I guess, personally. They can they can follow uh, on Instagram or Facebook. Um, they can find me under uh, under my name. We have a, a Instagram called Tales from Soul. I have two dogs, so we do a lot of stuff with them on there. So if anybody wants to follow along there, um, and then there's there's uh, there's some other stuff that, that that's coming up, um, you know, here this this year that that uh, we're working on. It's a tough time for everybody, you know, and and we've moved seven times in eight months, so we are. Um, trying to trying to get settled in a bit where we are in, in Mexico right now and uh, get on with our projects for the year and, and hope that this next year is going to be a better one for everybody. Yeah, I hope everybody stays healthy and, and safe and uh, take care of your loved ones and check in on your loved ones and just try to be kind and all that stuff and take care of each other. That's, that's about it, man. Just do the best we can. Awesome. And with that, um, thank you so much for making the time to chat with thank me today. You, yeah, you've had a thank lot you. of great stories to tell with us. Thank you. much for tuning in to another episode of the divided families podcast if you're interested in listening to more stories of family separation or learning more about our project please follow us on social media at divided families podcast thanks as always to flannel albert for the wonderful music and see you next time